Hello, welcome to Sound Engagement, a podcast devoted to engaging with our culture and community from a Christian worldview. I'm Brad Mills. And I am Peter Anderson. Hey, so long day. We just we just yeah. had a long conversation. Um, yes. And I'm excited to actually edit this conversation and share it with our couple of listeners. Um, yeah, one or two but, out there. Exactly. <laughs> our wives. For, for, for us to re-listen to our own interview, um, it will be exciting. No, but, uh, but we are bringing the topic of defunding the police. And, and I think just before we get into the interview with uh, Chief Fleming, who is the uh, chief of police at the, the, in the Clovis Police Department, and, and I let him give um, an introduction about himself and uh, share more about the, the local situation for the Clovis uh, Police Department. So we don't need to go into that right now, but I, I'm excited to hear his perspective and to share that uh, with our listeners. I, I would just say maybe as a starting point, um, as Christians, we want to make sure that that we're understanding what Scripture encourages us about, you know, respecting our authorities. And certainly, Romans thirteen, First uh, Peter uh, two. There's there's references we can look to that deal with just civil authorities in general. And it's always talking about from the top, from the king all the way down to any authority figure in your life. So obviously, an officer is someone whom God has given us as. Um, as image bearers for our protection to maintain peace mm. in our community. And so we are required to uh, honor them. We're required to respect their authority, to obey them, and to uh, to not be filled with hatred and anger for them and a desire to, uh, you know, eliminate them <laughs> from our lives. Mm-hmm. Like that, that kind right. of rhetoric that that's getting raised in the public uh, sphere and certainly mainstream media, there's just this attack, uh, this war on the police right now. And I think it's very unchristian. I want to at least acknowledge that if that's happening within the church, which I think it is, we need to, we need to correct that. Pastors mm-hmm. need to be calling that out and rebuking it, even as they would call out racism, right? You need to call out hatred for your fellow image bearing police officers, right? Yeah. No, I would agree. In fact, I was just reading first. I was just reading Jude recently, and if I could quote it, it's uh, it's talking about people who are um, basically uh, following the doctrine of. I'm just quoting it: the doctrine of demons. And one of the characteristics wow. of that is um, they, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse mm-hmm. on celestial beings. I mean, that's a characteristic of um, uh, demonic behavior according to the Bible. So it's pretty strong. It's pretty strong. And, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's concerning because I think uh, we do hear the cries of people who are um, oppressed, but I'm going to challenge that narrative a little bit because I think people immediately assume it's just black lives. Um, Mm -hmm. And what you're about to hear from uh, chief Clovis, you know, the chief of Clovis is that quite the contrary. I would say the oppressed right now are the police officers. Um, many police mm-hmm. officers, the psychological damage that they're having to go through right now to keep us safe, they are really going through some, we, they need our prayers. Um, and after hearing his testimony and, well, not so much testimony um, like what we think of it, but just as, you know, what what he's going through, what a lot of officers Experience, are going through. Yeah. 
it's very concerning, really, really concerning. So we should, we really need to keep these people in our prayers. We need to, uh, when you see an officer, um, support show them, show gratitude, say thank you. Um, which you know, I, think just, Calvin, yeah, I think it's so important that we do that. Yeah. Yeah. I would just add that Calvin talks about that being an aspect of honor, right? The mm. obedience, reverence, and gratitude, showing gratitude. Um, so mm. through acts of kindness, through, uh, like you mentioned in the interview, um, sending them, giving them uh, thank yous in, in person, but also sending them a card. Uh, it just being that yeah. word of encouragement, because so often what they're getting from the public right now is, is the middle finger. And mm. it's, it's just, it's really bad, uh, atrocious behavior. And so I think we need to do our best yeah. to correct that. And I think one anyway, thing that I think we need to, yeah, I think one thing that we also need to challenge though, too, is truth. And one yeah. of the things that we talk about in this interview is that, is it true that officers want to kill black people? And I'm hoping after you listen to this interview, you'll come to find out that that's just not true. And if you're in the church, our job is not to be friends with the world, it's to preach the truth. And even if that truth is 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 very offensive to people, we do it in love, we do it with gentleness, we do it with kindness, but we do it with the um, audacity, the, with, uh, we do it with the bravery that we need, that God needs to give us to say, that's actually not true. And, you know, and um, if it's not true, we, we need to stop propagating messages that are slandering our neighbor and slandering our brothers and sisters. That's not how the gospel is glorified. It's not how Christ is glorified by, based on lies. Um, and that's a lie. It's a blatant lie that officers want to kill black people. It's just, it's not true whatsoever. And, and if it's not true that now that doesn't mean as we, you know, learn from this inter interview that they're, you know, I, he left some openness at the end about, um, you know, what do we do with mental health? What do we do? Like, you know, maybe it's not defunding, maybe it's like funneling funds. How do we, um, keep officers very accountable. All of that stuff can be true. But anyway, we need to, we need to focus on things that are accurate. Good. Good word. Well, let's go ahead and jump into the interview then. All right. Well, thank you, um, Chief Fleming, for being willing to join us for this interview. I know we've been chatting for a little bit here about your background, but I, I wanted to just jump right in and, and ask you, um, how you have been, or, or, or sir, how, how long have you been in the area? Did you grow up here? And what's your, um, I guess, relationship with the law enforcement? How long have you been in? Well, I appreciate you guys having me today. Um, I've been in law enforcement over 21 years. I'm born and raised in the Central Valley here in Fresno. Um, went to uh, Bullard High School, where I graduated in 1994, and then went on to Fresno State to ultimately get my bachelor's and master's degree in criminology. Um, started my career in law enforcement with the Fresno Police Department back in 1999. I uh, worked there for just a little under eight years uh, before transferring over to the Clovis Police Department where I've been since uh, 2006. Kind of worked So you my... wanted... Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Uh, just worked my way through the ranks uh, while here in Clovis and been lucky enough to be in, been in the right position at the right time and uh, became chief here this last August uh, 5th of uh, 2019. Yeah, uh, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, has uh, there been a um, interest in law enforcement from a young age? It sounds like you, you immediately went with that route what, out of high school. 
Yeah, I, I, I only had one other job at Frito-Lay um, while uh, going through college. Uh, when I was in college, I was really interested in, in being a, uh, a doctor, a brain surgeon. I took oh, wow. a chemistry five <laughs> course and uh, immediately found that that was not the line of work for me. Um, so I kind of went through, then I wanted to be in administration and, and education, um, started going that route. And then my uh, brother-in-law, who my sister was dating at the time uh, before they got married, was a police officer with the city of Fresno and mm. kind of said, hey, you should probably look into the law enforcement. It's a great job. Um, take a few criminology courses, which I did and found that it really wasn't work for me. I actually enjoyed it and enjoyed mm. the subject. So that's kind of where my passion began for, for law enforcement. That's great. Has it been a difficult transition to becoming chief? It's not quite been a year yet. Yeah, I always, the few interviews I, I've done, uh, people ask me, well, how's it going? And I go, it's not what I expected. It is so <laughs> much more. It's, it's a great yeah. job, uh, but there is a lot to it. There becomes not just a, a daily job of, you know, going out and enforcing the law or, or supervising people at different ranks. It's it becomes having to deal with a lot of personnel issues, having to deal with the the political side of it, and engaging with the media and uh, city council, and uh, just there's just so many more aspects to it uh, that you really truly don't realize before you get in this position. Hmm. Yeah. What would you say, what would you say is, have been some of your biggest surprises when you first got on? And that's that's fascinating. You wanted to be a, a brain surgeon and now a, a police officer. <laughs> that's quite a turn. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Um, yeah. I, the biggest like surprises probably was uh, getting pulled in so many different directions right away. I mean, from the first week um, during that, my first week as chief, the uh, our local sheriff here was out. Um, I think she was having surgery or something, and, and then the uh, chief for Fresno was working his transition to working out through retirement. So there were some hot topics going on, and right away within my first few days as chief, I'm getting contacted by local media wanting me to give a statement, and I'm really <laughs> just trying to get my feet planted and, and try to learn what my job is here and make sure I'm doing a good job and, and focused mm -hmm. on our department here. And I found out quickly that it's not all about just – here in Clovis, there's there's so much more that um, is going to be demanded of me. So I need to be prepared for all things that are going on. So as I'm driving home, listening to talk radio or or, or whatever, I, I'm you constantly thinking how can that affect here us here in Clovis and and having thoughts in mind to be able to answer those questions if if they come my way. So just uh, having a different perspective for sure has been been the, the most uh, I guess eye opening from the beginning. Hmm. Well, speaking of just kind of the the local um, atmosphere and the reputation that Clovis has, I've always heard really positive, encouraging remarks about the department, and um, and I, I believe from what I could find, there was like a ninety five percent approval rating from the community. Uh, is that true? Yeah, that's that's one of our top goals um, is to have a, at least a 90 percent or higher uh, satisfaction rating from our citizens. We actually this last year, traditionally, we've had this goal for, I don't know, 20, 25 years. And we've always done mailers to to people that have contact with law enforcement um, that are victims to see how we're doing. And uh, as time's gone on, less people respond to mail, more people are it's a digital age and. So we found that we're mailing out a hundred surveys a month and we're getting back two. So 
are we truly getting a good gauge of what our public believes, you know, the job we're doing? So we recently just started the, uh, a, a contract with a company called Spider Tech where um, we have a three-year three contract. So every time you get contacted by the police department, you'll receive a text saying, we got your call, an officer will be en route shortly. Um, if we're delayed more than 15 minutes, it'll update saying, hey, we're sorry, we're still working on your call and, and you'll get a response from an officer here shortly. Uh, once the officers come on scene and then uh, clear the call, you'll get a text basically with your case number, the officer's name, and then a, a short survey that we ask that you fill out. So we've had like a 70% uh, response in those surveys of everybody that gets them. So we're getting a much better feel for what our public thinks of us. We get to actually hear the comments of things they think is the most important challenges facing our department, things that we should be focusing on. And we've out of those, we're, st we're still hitting above 95, 98% satisfaction mm -hmm. rating of the citizens and the, the calls. And a lot of that goes to just when people call, we go. That's that's our philosophy. Right. And we try to get there as quick as possible. And uh, people that live in different cities and then move to Clovis, they that's their number one thing is when, you, when we call you, you show up and you show up fast and you take care of the job. So that's really mm -hmm. one of our, our number one goals. That's awesome. Well... There is also an interesting stat I found that uh, says that you have one of the lowest officer to citizen ratios. Um, kind of there's a typical range of having one officer per thousand residents and Clovis has 0.84, which may actually be lower now as uh, because of some of the latest budget uh, cuts. But it does remain the safest city in the Central Valley. It's in the top 10% nationwide. So I, I find that to be something to, to be kind of, um, I'm, just, I'm intrigued by that. I'm excited by those, by those numbers because it means you're, you're doing a great job with less uh, than most cities are. Do you, do you feel like there's a sense of being understaffed or um, I guess, is there a sense in which maybe the department needs more money to maintain the current levels of safety? Yeah, we are, I think now with the, the, the two recent retirements, we're going to be at 0. 0.82 um, oh, wow. so, in population. So of all cities over the size of 100,000 in the state of California, we are the lowest staffed department um, wow. in the in the state. Um, just our counterparts at Fresno Pleaty, who we, we border a, a city line with, they uh, are a city of over 500,000. They have over 800 officers and, and their per capita is about 1.5 to 1 1.6 um, officers per thousand. So they almost have double the officers per per um, per capita than we do. Um, and it's not just a local thing because of crime. It is it's a statewide thing. And it's um, it just shows in the numbers in the Central Valley. I think we're number four. Um, and that's of all all departments. So we have like departments of McFarland that are ahead of us, which are very small departments. Delano is a few others, but uh, for a city, a size of 120,000 that we're at now, uh, we're the fastest growing city, second to Roseville in the state of California. Last year, we grew at 2.2%. And it is becoming a challenge for us and law enforcement to be able to keep up with the growth of our city. And um, historically, I think in the last 20 years, we've averaged right around 100 officers. Uh, we've got up to 117 at one point. We had the uh, economic downturn, uh, went down to 87. Uh, we made it back up to about 105, and, and now we're right at 100 that we're authorized for and currently at 98. 
Um, so it's just, it's an ongoing battle and short of um, something changing with uh, uh, some type of financial change, we're general funded uh, department, um, mm. which includes the fire department, parks and rec, uh, the senior center. We're all fighting for the same tax dollars. I mean, everybody, there is a need for each of those areas and short of some growth in that area of the general fund, which would be some tax, type of tax measure or property tax, um, it, things aren't really going to change um, for our department. And um, so it's, it's difficult and it's that's really the city council's, um, I guess, biggest challenge is how to figure out how do we how do we fund all these departments appropriately and and short of doing a tax measure, which nobody nobody wants. And uh, I'm a tax paying citizen, just like everybody else. And um, I agree, taxes aren't always the answers, but um, at some point, something does have to change. So, so I know there are many who are doing their best to actually throw mud on the police department to tarnish their reputation, to try to make it look um, um, like there's this war on black people or minorities in general, and um, there there's this campaign, a project that's called campaign or it's a project of campaign zero and they did this police scorecard for every city or every department i believe in california <clears throat> and they they give the clovis pd an f and there's several things that they take into account and so i wanted to work through that and just ask you for your your response to that it's it seems to be consistent with sort of the movement right now to defund the police and so they looked at data from 2016 to 2018, and the first thing they they point out is that there were four incidents in those three years related to the use of deadly force. So there does seem there they they had I think out of the, those four, one was Hispanic and three were white, if I recall. So they didn't mention anything about racial bias in the numbers related to the use of deadly force. But are there any policy changes or any issues that maybe you've considered in order to limit the use of force? What are the are there dangers involved in in putting some limitations like that on your officers? Yeah, I honestly I didn't even know about this website until you guys had reached out to me and, and had questions about it. So I, I looked it up. Um, it looks like they're looking at the the top 100 departments in California. So I'm assuming by Maybe, it's, the largest, maybe it's okay. the largest departments within California. And uh, I saw we ranked, I think, 90 out of the 100, uh, being 90 being uh, towards the worst part of that scale. And uh, mm-hmm. I think uh, like Fresno is just because they're right next to us. I think they were like in the 40s or something. But if you look at it, everybody from 30 on to the 100 all have an F. Uh, I think the, the best was Tracy. Uh, PD, which had a, a B, uh, was the best score. Um, I, I w- we went through this data. I had my crime analyst just look through it and compare it to our data. And a lot of it's not accurate. It's uh, a lot of it is depends on how you interpret the data. Really says a lot. Um, and a lot of uh, just for one example, um, a lot of people have been pushing the narrative of um, African American or or, or um, two times, four times more likely to be arrested or, or shot and killed by police in the line of duty. And um, 
for our city, I just looked at our stats because that's all I can control is what I can control here locally. So I want to look and say, hey, what is Clovis doing? Because there was a local news story that showed that we arrested uh, African-Americans at a twice the, the rate of a, of a white male. And in, in looking at the stats, if you strictly take the population of Clovis versus the arrest stats, that's the way it appears. It appears that we have a population of African-Americans at a 4.5%. And we arrest African Americans at a at a nine point I think it's five percent rate. So it looks like we arrest African Americans as twice as likely than, than a, a white person. But if you really look at the data, and if you just took the population of Clovis, our population of African Americans is about five thousand. And if you compare that the population of African Americans in our in our community versus the, the people we arrest on average, African-Americans about 450 over the last five years is the arrest of, of African-Americans. And you break that out, it's, it's a much different number. Um, if you take that deeper and you look at how many of those people that we arrest of those 450 are actually residents of Clovis that actually make up our population. And it's only 27% of the people we arrest are from the city of Clovis that are African-American. Wow. 70%, I think it's, <laughs> 48% are actually from the city of Fresno and that other 27% are from outside the Fresno Clovis area. I can't wow. control or our officers can't control who comes into our city and commits crimes. Um, you, you can look at it even deeper of those calls of those 450 arrests. How many were generated by the officers going out and stopping somebody or by a citizen calling in and over 66% of the calls were from citizens calling us saying a crime is occurring. Um, the, the remaining amount were from officers um, doing traffic stops or doing proactive policing. So when I look at that, uh, really it broke down to African-Americans are 0.29% more likely to be arrested than a white person, which is minuscule. Uh, but when you look at the numbers even deeper, it's people that are coming from outside of our city coming in and it's, it's citizens calling us because uh, the number one uh, top five things that African-Americans are arrested for in the city of Clovis are theft, shoplifting, for warrant arrests, uh, traffic stops. And I, I don't know the fifth off the top of my head, but um, it's it's for things that majority of the time people are calling us and it's people that are coming from outside our city into our city to commit crimes. So that's just one example. If you really look at the data, and do some analysis, it, it, it counters that. I just looking at the website as we're talking, uh, it says four, lead, four deadly force incidents. Um, in the last five years, um, four and a half years, we've only had one deadly force right. uh, encounter, and that was an officer involved shooting in 2016. Um, that was a justified shooting. The, the mother of the suspect in that case actually gave a statement to the media at that time saying, my son wanted to be killed by the police. That was wow. the goal. Um, so those are, there's certain things that sometimes in this occupation that we're gonna have to use force. There's things outside our control, um, but we train our officers the best we can, as often as we can to de-escalate situations. We give them crisis intervention training. I'm working on currently um, getting all of my officers through a 40 hour course um, in crisis intervention training. Um, to deal with mental health and, and substance abuse. We work closely with the Fresno County uh, Health Department and we have two clinicians assigned to our department to monitor cases that we encounter with mental health um, individuals in our city. And 
and they do the follow-up. They come out with our officers and firsthand deal with uh, this population and try to get them the help they need. So we're doing everything we can to make sure we never have to use force. But I'm going to tell you right now that that's tomorrow or next year. At some point, it's there's probably a good likelihood that we might have to use deadly force. And that's really just a part of law enforcement. And, and I don't know that we can ever get to that number being at zero. I mean, we're going to try as best we can. Um, and are we going to make mistakes in law enforcement? We can train the best, hire the best, but we are going to make, make mistakes at times. We need to own that. Um, we need mm. to be transparent. Every officer in our department um, has a body cam and has to wear a body cam while out on patrol contacting the citizens. That's something that came out of um, um, during the last kind of uh, like 2014 or something. Yeah, Obama's administration, they had a 21st century policing um, task force that came out of that. And that was one of the best best practices was, you know, to employ body cams. And, and at that time we did that. Um, not to just keep talking here, but this, this is something that you can go on our city's website. It's our report to the community. And it really is a, a look inside of our police department and how we compare to these, these pillars that during Obama's administration, this task force put together best practices for policing. And we, we took a look at ourselves and said, how are we doing compared to these things that they recommended back, back then when they put this task force together? So, um, we put that together. It's on our website. You can look at it and it's things we're doing to engage the community, make sure people trust us. They understand what we're doing and why we're doing it and how we train our, our employees to do their job. Yeah. I mean, well, thank you. No, that makes a lot of, where do you think the, cause I wanted to, it's when you were saying that about zero, I mean, I think it was Van Jones. Um, what did he say on CNN? He was like, if another black man dies, we're going to have serious problems. And I just thought to myself, my gosh, that is not healthy rhetoric right now. I mean, is that really what you're going for? Is this where some people are really going for? But I just read the, the recent statement on the ACLU on defunding the police. And I'd love to get your, some, some of your responses on that, because the first premise that they start with is that policing is not neutral. It comes from slave patrol. And so they believed that policing came from just, you know, enforcing Jim Crow, war on drugs. Therefore, the whole thing kind of needs to come down. Um, that's what I'm hearing. A lot of this rhetoric that basically, whether it's a 1619 project, whether it's Tananisha Coates, whether it's some of these kind of these people that are proposing, like, burn the whole thing down, their premises, it comes from an inherently racist organization because it started from a place of racism. Think of all the statues that are coming down right now. Therefore, this is the logical leap they make, let's defund the whole thing. And uh, and they would say, let's cut to give, they wanna cut from the police department so that we can give more, more to job training. I don't know what kind of job training that would be. Uh, counseling, which I'm a therapist, and um, I'll talk about that, how, I'm terrified to go meet with some people. Uh, violence prevention programs, that's where they would want to put a lot of that money. But the main reason for that is so that they can end minor offenses. They want to end the presence of police in schools because it creates trauma. Um, develop mobile crisis. Um, really kind of ban pretextual stops and then implement more common sense. So that's, that's, that's their basic premises. The premise is, number one, police comes from the slave patrol and it has its foundation of Jim Crow war on drugs. So I'd love to get your response on that because this is what the public's hearing. This is 
you know, I mean, I just, I was, I was, um, gosh, I was, I was driving on the highway the other day and there was a guy, he rolled down his window and he, um, flipped off the police officer and, um, screamed at him and drove away. And I'm like, and this is, I live in Beverly, Massachusetts, which is a very all white, pretty nonviolent town. And I called the, I called the officer the other day and my, um, I just said, how are you guys doing? And he said, his voice was a little shaky. He's like, it's been really hard. And, um, I mm-hmm. said, you know, we really thank you for your work. We thank you so much for what you're doing. And his voice shook a little bit with emotion. Um, my little eight-year-old girl heard about that story. She said, I want to write him a, a card. And so she, we went over there and we wrote him a card. And the guy got pretty emotional. And this is Beverly. So I can't imagine the kind of psychological stuff that you guys are hearing right now. But that's a lot there. But how would you respond to that? The first thing, just the public is starting to think this kind of idea that policing stems from this kind of police control America is this inherently racist organization. We need to burn everything that looks like racism, get rid of all of it, and start all over again. I'd love to get your response on that. What do you want to say to people that may want to come from that premise? That's a big yeah, question. I'd, yeah, I'd be well. I'd be interested to know what the what the solution is. So, if you do remove the police, what what is the solution? Um, our our main purpose, sole purpose that we were created for, was the is to preserve the peace, um, and so. No matter when I put this uniform on, I don't have any political views. I don't have a, a, a say, and all I do is enforce the law that was created by the legislature, the people that were elected by by the citizens to put them in place. They create the laws. I, we simply enforce them, um, and I I believe every person we we train our officers on implicit bias. Everybody comes from a different background. Everybody has inherent biases, no matter who you are. You just need to know what those are and keep them in check. And uh, we, we train that. Um, we don't allow any type of racism here in our department. Um, I will fire you before you can even think twice. If I hear that anything has occurred, uh, racist related, racist comments, it is not acceptable. And my officers know that. Um, and that, that will be, uh, be handled immediately. I, I can't really speak for to the Jim Crow and the slavery and, 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 and the things of the past. I can only speak to my time in law enforcement. I've never witnessed it. Um, I know a lot of the things that are going on right now. They're talking about policies that duty to intercede and, and things, uh, banning chokeholds and, and all these other mm-hmm. things. And really all these policies, maybe the East Coast is different. I don't know because there's some departments, I think, that are putting these policies in place that didn't have them. And it's kind of surprising. I know on the West Coast, um, we've had in our policy for years. You can go on our city's website. Our policy is is on there. Everybody can see what our policies are to use of force, to uh, the type of force, how we investigate use of force complaints, citizen complaints, and all that stuff. That's that's on there for you to read. But yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I, and I kind of like when they said, let's send mental health counselors. I'm a mental health counselor. I work out. I'm a pretty in shape guy. And I can't tell you the number of times I've gone inside hospitals with psychotic patients who are alcoholic, who are extremely volatile that we need to section, who is very psychotic and he's hearing voices and hallucinations. He needs, and most of the, most mental health counselors are females. 
um, I think 85% of mental health counselors are females. So you're going, you're telling me that you're going to, you know, send a mental health counselor to a six foot three psychotic patient who is alcoholic, who is, who's on substances, who is volatile, who cannot cal calm down. And there are times that we do have to section them and the security guards are not well-trained. Some of the officers, we actually do need to call them in, not all the time, but the minute an officer walks in, that guy actually calms down pretty significantly because after, if we have, if we section him and um, he gets arrested right there in the hospital, then he has to go to court. And then he has to go, the, the psychiatrist has to see him, the court psychiatrist has to see him. And so he, he immediately like calms down pretty significantly. He probably wouldn't do that if it was just a female counselor that's about five foot three that weighs 98 pounds. You know, you're not talking to somebody that's actually reasonable. So when I, when I read this stuff, I'm like, do you guys even, do you have any idea what it's like to be an officer or even a mental health counselor? And the, I mean, you're not talking about somebody that's, you know, I mean, I'm a private practice clinician. You're not talking about some guy that wants to work on his marriage and, hey, my wife's not listening to me right now, you know, <laughs> or, you know, I, I need help with my kid um, because, you know, my kid's not doing his math. I mean, this is this is some serious stuff. And I don't know if you had anything to say about that, like, you know, as far as like even the chokeholds, like um, it's funny because when you say that, um, I have another officer friend and he said, if you ban chokeholds, you leave me with one option and that's my stick. I have to hit the guy with my stick and then I probably will give him a concussion for the rest of his life. And mm -hmm. so, you know, if you, if you, I, I actually sometimes have to use my martial arts training to knock him out so the guy can breathe again. If you ban that, I will then have to use my actual baton and beat him. Yeah. So it's like, I think a lot of people don't even understand the policies they're putting forth may, may worsen. I don't know if you wanted to say anything to that. Actually, before we get on the mental health, I'd love to, mm. as far as chokeholds, those don't exist. We don't train in chokeholds. Uh, I mean, any technique, uh, even though it's not in policy, if I'm fighting for my life, then absolutely a, a chokehold, uh, hitting somebody, striking them with a flashlight, whatever it takes to, to, to you know, survive. Absolutely, those things would be authorized. But as far as technique that's, that we teach anywhere related to the neck is only the carotid restraint. And that's just to apply pressure on both the carotid arteries to temporarily render somebody unconscious, to get them into handcuffs. And as soon as we get them in handcuffs, we're putting them in a position of recovery on their side and getting a medical attention, which is required by our policy to have them checked out by EMTs or a physician at the hospital. Um, that is still in our policy. You can go on our website. I, as the police chief, until the law has changed, it says we cannot use that. I will absolutely let my officers continue to use that because if they're fighting somebody that's twice their size and there's three officers fighting with somebody and they can, and they're on that person's back and they can reach around and, 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 you know, disable them for a short period of time to get them in handcuffs without having to use their baton, without having to strike them with punches, or elbow strikes or something else that looks so much more violent uh, to, to a citizen that doesn't deal with those things every day. I would absolutely support that. We've used that in the past in our department and it's been successful in, in bringing um, situations under control. It's rarely used, I can tell you that. We highly discourage it unless you're in a situation where that's your last resort. Um, we still wanna allow our officers to have that ability to use that, to completely ban it and say you can't use it, it just puts us in a, a, a much greater position to have to potentially use deadly force, and that's what we want to avoid at all costs. As far as the mental health side, 
we we agree that we wear a lot a lot of hats and over the years when people don't know what how to deal with situations they they tend to well let the police deal with that and we agree with the public we are not the best people to handle mental health issues um, but a majority of the time when somebody needs help and they're having trouble they call us and we respond um, we train our officers in how to deal with crisis intervention we give them the tools on how to deal with that are we the best at dealing with that absolutely not um, but we are first responders we need to bring things situations under control in, in certain situations um, that's why we partner with fresno county behavioral health um, here locally we have clinicians in our department um, that go out with us um, to try to get people the help they need so we don't have to contact them in the future on the streets uh, to have them go out on their own without law enforcement present would be absolutely crazy mm -hmm. and dangerous situation to put the, them in and a lot of things that were are being put out out there as far as like uh, the city of berkeley is going to not allow their officers to do traffic stops in the future they're going to create a department of transportation uh, legally i don't even know how you have a non-sworn person pull somebody over because in our penal code here in california only a sworn off peace officer has the power and authority to turn on a red light or drive a vehicle with a steady red light that, that tells a citizen you must pull over and comply and and somebody without sworn peace officer powers does not have that authority to do that so how that works in the city of berkeley i have no idea i'm, I'm really curious on the outside looking looking in to see how that how that plays out um, also when you do a traffic stop that's probably one of the most dangerous things that we encounter uh, besides domestic violence and you really don't know what you're encountering it could be somebody just committed a homicide that's traveling through town it could have been somebody that's you know has several um, pounds of, of some type of narcotic in their car and they're going to flee it could be a number of things and to send somebody up there without the proper tools to deal with that situation is really putting them in a bad position hmm. yeah and they probably wouldn't be armed i would imagine the um but i don't you know so it seems like just just insane to yeah. to an attempt that approach without some extreme uh measures which which ultimately would make them much closer to a police officer right if they have to be trained in all these things and then they have to be armed like eventually you're going okay now what's the difference between this person and a police officer uh, but yeah because you're assuming that he's going to comply you know right then, I mean, why would he listen to you? <laughs> I don't understand. I could say about sixty percent of the mental health counselors we have in the mental in the in the hospital don't listen to us unless there's a security guard or police officer comes in. Hmm. You know, they just don't. They're like, "F you, I want to leave," and hmm. they will unless there's a security guard there. I would hmm. say almost every guy that we section about eighty, much higher than sixty percent. I'm being very liberal here. Um, almost everybody that we section who wants to leave will leave unless there's a security guard or police officer that's right there. So why would you comply? That's assuming right. that you know, the psychology of compliance, like, oh, okay, yeah, thanks. I will pay for this ticket. Thank you for pulling me over. You know, I just, <laughs> naive, the naivete, I guess. I appreciate that. As long as you're not an officer, I feel better now. I will pay this $100 plane. You know, thank you. <laughs> um, it's, uh, sorry, I didn't offer. I, I guess we have to laugh a little bit, you know, it's, it's just kind of, we're going insane. And uh, Go ahead, Greg. 
It's a little silly, but I do want to follow up on, you mentioned that you have the policy for how you respond to complaints um, online, but maybe you could go into that a little bit just in terms of what's the department's process for handling civilian complaints. That was one of the things going back to the scorecard that they, they um, dinged you on, you know, they, they said there was something like 29 civilian complaints, which on top of all this, right. Thinking about the four, four instances where there was a use of deadly force, there's 29 civilian complaints. You probably in those three years that they were looking at the data, there must've been half a million interactions with the public and 29 of them resulted in complaints. So some of this is a little bit like we are making a mountain out of a molehill, but I'd still like to hear your thoughts on, on that process. Yeah. I just, I broke out some numbers that they had in there that, um, we had four incidents. They say deadly force, but it's really serious use of force because only one of those is oh, truly yeah. deadly force. Um, and there's actually, to be honest with you, there's probably nine incidents that we reported to the Department of Justice that were required under certain use of force to report. And we actually reported nine of them during this time. And, and the interesting thing is in nine of those incidents, four of our officers were injured with broken bones, mm -hmm. serious injuries during those use of force incidents, but none of that information is, is put on the website. Um, you know, when our officers are getting injured, they're, they're having to use force to, to survive and bring a situation under control. It's usually a violent encounter. Um, and our officers are also put in dangerous situations, but that, that is not being discussed. Um, it also talks about, I think, uh, the only deadly force encounter we had was a result was a, a white male that was killed. Um, of the nine incidents, every one of them was white, except for one incident was involving a, a, a black male. So I, I'm not sure where, where exactly the, the data is coming from. And then I just did some rough numbers. If you take the same, they, they have something in there talks about the um, for every 10,000 arrests, it says three point something nine two or something result in uh, a use of force incident. Um, so I broke it out like you're just saying. Uh, on average, we, we respond to 85,000 calls a year. Um, mm -hmm. Over that same three-year period, we responded to 255,000 calls for service. And so it's 0.00000392% likely in those 255,000 incidents that we were going to use a deadly force. So, so, the so the Clovis Department, you all had 255,000? In a three-year, three-year, in that uh, three years, goodness. Uh, so, on how many, how many, how many officers y'all have? A hundred, you said? Hundred officers, and on average, we respond to about eighty-five thousand calls a year. Wow. Okay. Goodness. So, it, it, the number is really minuscule when it when it ends up resulting in a use of force or a deadly force situation, and that seems like what everybody is focused on. Um, which mm. I agree. We, we hope that we never have to use deadly force. Our officers don't come to work looking to do that. They hope they make it through their entire career without even having to pull out their, their handgun and everybody would comply. It, it would be a much easier um, world. Typically, you can de-escalate in my career in 21 years. I've been able to talk most people um, into, into handcuffs, into going to jail, into complying. The situations that that does not happen is typically when people are under the influence of some type of narcotic or alcohol or um, when they're mentally ill. If I could, yeah. Yeah. And if I can ask about that, because I have seen officers make situations worse. I have. And like I work at a hospital and there was a complaint um, 
And I want to ask you, because I could tell you do a really good job as a police chief. So I want to ask you, why do some officers like not know how to de-escalate situations? I've come in situations where at, again, the hospital or working with, and the guy was calm and he was, and then the officer came in and he like completely escalated the situation. I've been myself, I've been in situations where that really did not go, had need to go out of hand, you know, I, you know, and I, what, so my question isn't for you, it's more, why do you think that is? Do you think it's a lack of accountability? Do you think it's lack of good police chiefing or, you know, what, what's your opinion on that? I, in my opinion, it all comes back. The most important job in this profession for, for, for me as the chief is to ensure that we hire the right people is who gets to come in this door and who gets to wear a gun and badge. The hiring process is the most important and you hire the right people and you typically are not going to have citizen complaints because people are doing the right job for the right reason. Um, you're not going to have use of force incidents that are um, not reasonable or not within policy. And you can trust that your officers are doing things for the right reasons. And like I tell everybody, I will have your back completely. If you're everything you're doing is legal, legal um, within policy and, and, and moral, um, I'll have your back. I mean, if, if you're going out there and, and you do something and it, and it looks bad, we'll, we'll deal with that. Um, we all wear body cams. Um, now with in California, um, the law was passed. Any use of force incident, um, major use of force, the body cam has to be released within 45 days. Our goal here at the Closed Police Department is to try to do a, uh, a press conference within 72 hours and, and let the public and the citizens know why we use force, walk them through the body cam footage and, and provide that body cam footage to, to the media and to the public. Um, so... Like when you say, because the Atlanta incident was really, I really struggled with that. I mean, which is very different from George Floyd. I, I've never met anybody that looked at the George Floyd incident and was like, oh yeah, that was good policing. I don't know if you wanted to say anything about that, you know, and, but, but the Atlanta situation was really interesting because it was like, I didn't know if you, I mean, did you feel like that, that was a reasonable use of force with, um, I forgot what the, who, what his name was in Atlanta. Happened about it, Which, uh, Rashad Brooks. Yes, yeah, yeah, Rashad Brooks. I mean, what what's your take on that? And again, like, yeah, do, do you think that when officers use too much force, is it is it? I mean, I heard from Chauvin, whatever his name was, you know, over over uh, who did the George Floyd, yeah, in Minneapolis, that he was he had like 14, 18 different complaints against him. You know, he um, some people complain about some forces. You know, you it's almost like the Roman Catholic Church in the sense like an officer can do a lot of really bad stuff and then they just go to a different force and they go to a different force. Police unions being too strong. So I don't want to throw too much here. I'm just saying this is what a lot of the public is, you know, debating. So the stuff with Brooks, do you feel like my, my specific question, do you feel like Brooks, that was a reasonable use of force? And if not, why? And yeah, just curious on your take on that. So as far as George Floyd, I, I agree. I don't think you'll find any law enforcement officer that's going to say that was proper police work. And I fully support what he did. When I watched it, I had a hard time watching the entire video. It was, it was disgusting. That's not what we teach. Um, we don't, we don't teach officers to put knees on people's necks or honestly to have them in a position on their stomach and to have four people on them is not what we train. We train to, to get you into restraints and to get you on your side uh, in a position of recovery where you can breathe. 
to ensure that your safety. Once I have handcuffs on you, you are in my control and care, and I need to ensure your safety. And I'm, that's my number one responsibility. So George Floyd uh, was was a, a disgusting case. Um, it, it was a tragedy, and and it's something that now all the law enforcement in the nation have to deal with and have to answer. And that's why it's so super frustrating and, and probably more, I'm more upset about it than probably most citizens because my profession now has to answer for the actions of one officer. Well, really four officers that, that were there in that situation and, and they didn't handle it properly. As far as uh, Rashad Brooks case in, in Atlanta, um, after that happened, I that day that the DA came out and charged those officers, I felt compelled to go out and I met with every officer in my department, went to every patrol shift, every briefing, and I wanted to answer questions for them to let them know my position on that. And if they were in that position, because I knew every person at my department was probably questioning this profession. And when mm -hmm. I go out today and I have to make a decision to use force, is my department going to back me up in my city and my city council? city manager and everybody else. So I wanted to go personally talk to every officer, let them know what I felt about the situation. And if they found themselves in that situation tonight, that that I would have their back, I would back them up and let the system play out, let the legal process work. But if you're doing, if you're in a use of force situation, you can't second guess yourself. You need to react, you need to protect yourself. You need to go home safely and I will have your back. And if, if I'm ultimately put in a position where I need to decide one way or the other, that's going to have my job in jeopardy. I, I'm not, I told them, I'm not concerned. I have five years before I'm even at the age of retirement, I will go find something else to do before I um, put my morals in question or my ethics uh, and choose, a, you know, because of the political game or because of a, a crowd that came and starts to question the decisions we made and, and my support of my officers um, that I would not, um, sacrifice for them. So I let them know that. And I'm not saying I would choose my officers in every situation. Sometimes we make mistakes and I'll come out and say, be the first one to say that is absolutely not what we should have done. George Floyd would be a great example of that. Atlanta, there's so many variables that are so different. You have a guy that's, that's intoxicated that is complying absolutely at the beginning become but when it comes to a point to to comply and be arrested the fight is on he's punching officers he's taking weapons away from officers he's firing firing those weapons at officers yes it's a less, less lethal taser but every officer has been been tased themselves with that taser when they receive training and they know how it can incapacitate you they know that they have a firearm on their hip and if i become inca incapacitated there's a good chance i'm i can i'm going to get killed and so the officer looking at that looks at it completely different. There's certain areas we we shoot with a taser that are are considered less less lethal. We don't shoot you in the face because we know that can be a lethal use of force. Um, if you look at Rashad, he, he's he's pointing back at the officer. He's firing in a direction that could have hit him in the eye or in the face, could have seriously injured him. And that officer had to make a split second decision. And, and he made a decision and now he'll have to answer for that. But we got to let the process work and we can't, you know, jump to conclusions. Um, and so I just ask that citizens in certain communities, like I know in Clovis, our citizens trust that we're doing the right thing. We built that trust. Um, that's one of our goals to engage our community through different events and, and 
uh, be transparent. So, well, and I'd like to just chime in on that. I, as a pastor in the community, I know I've met with police chaplains and and individuals who have really encouraged us to involve the police officers as much as we can in if we're doing some kind of community event. If we have bounce houses out there, like maybe invite the police uh, to come and 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 just be available. Kids could sit in the police car or something like that, or or just interact with the police officer. There's a a community that that really wants to build trust between you know kids and the and the officers at, and at all ages and um i've just been impressed by that that is fostering a relationship where we know officers are on our side they're protecting us they're for maintaining peace and um that is that is just radically different in places like minneapolis seattle where the public is just, it's seemingly at least, um, completely at odds with the police departments and building animosity to where uh, I know if I were a police officer, I don't think I'd want to stay there uh, long-term in, in that environment. How, how much of a sacrifice are we asking them to make to be in an environment where people don't like them and, and they've got to maintain the peace and not ever have a, a, a the ability to I don't know to 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 make a mistake. <laughs> there's there's no room for error. Um, what would you say to to that scenario? I, I would honestly, I would say that to those the officers that are in those situations that uh, here at the Clovis Police Department, our community supports us. Um, we have a great department. We have uh, the safest city in the valley. Um, we have vacancies that we can't feel because we are very selective on who we hire and we want the best of the best, no matter who they are. And if you're in Seattle and you're questioning why you're doing the job there, when people don't support you and your, your, your local government doesn't support you, we'd encourage you to apply here. We'd love to have you. Um, we, we, is, we find it difficult before, before the COVID, uh, crisis happened or pandemic, I had a authorization to hire 109 officers, the funding for that, mm -hmm. uh, because of budget cuts, I had nine vacancies that I was trying to fill and the, all nine vacancies got cut out of my budget. Um, but I was having a hard time filling those nine vacancies just because law enforcement is such a tough profession. You think about every day you go to work, you are going to be second guest. You have to wear so many different hats. You have a body cam on and everybody gets to watch what you do on a daily basis and then then second guess you after you make a split second decision. Um, it's a tough occupation to get into. It's a tough profession. Um, it's still the greatest job in the world. I wouldn't change anything from 21 years ago and the decision I made to come into law enforcement, but it is challenging and I understand why less and less people want to do this job, um, but it's still a noble profession. I still encourage people to, to go in law enforcement um, yeah, well, when you said doing something wrong, I just wanted to jump in real quick, Brad, because it seems like officers are getting punished for doing things that are right. And that's really demoralizing, I could imagine. It's, um, you know, uh, as a relationship counselor, I know this is a totally different field, but uh, relationships will often end in divorce when he feels punished for doing things that are right in the relationship. They don't last long. And I can't imagine the psychological damage sometimes officers have to take when that's why I wanted to ask you about the Rashad books. I mean, you're doing things that you feel like are right and you're getting punished for it. That's 
you know, that's a psychology of loss. That's very demotivating. I understand when I mess up, when I make a mistake and I get punished for it, that's one thing. When I do things that I think have integrity and I'm trying to keep the community safe and I'm following what my conscience tells me and my training tells me, and I'm trying to keep this community, prevent anybody from being harmed. And now I go to prison. That's a total different psychological area. And that's really why I felt compelled to go talk to all my officers because I know mentally they were in probably a bad place. There's people that are, I think, a quarter, I think it's about a quarter of our departments within five years of retirement. And those people I'm concerned about maybe retiring early. There's a lot of people that uh, half of our departments only got about five to six years of experience because we've hired a lot of people here in the last five years. I'm concerned that maybe they want to go and choose a different profession because of the way things are going. And so that's why I really felt compelled to go and talk to them and, and ensure that things that are going on in different parts of the nation are not what go on here and not the support we have from our community. So don't, don't question that. Don't question, you know, leaving here um, or, or, but you'll find in New York and Seattle and other places, you're seeing a lot of early retirements, a lot of people mm -hmm. choose to apply at different agencies, um, which is just going to com compound things in those communities. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of the community complaints, you do get some and what uh, just for the transparency issue, which so many police officers are, or the police departments are getting um, chastised about what is, what is the process that you go through? Is there maybe possibility for reform in that area? Do you have third party reviewing the issues or is it just internally? Yeah. What is, uh, what's your response to that? Yeah, I, th I think if you, uh, you, you're in a community where your community doesn't trust you, then it's probably a good idea to have a, a independent citizen um, advisory board that reviews, you know, use of force incidents and, and makes a determination. I guess the concern in those situations is um, what knowledge does that group have about law enforcement and why we do things that we do and the training that we go through. That would be my only concern. I don't think that's necessary necessarily in our community because I feel, I feel that our community has our trust. For our department, if, if a use of force incident occurs, you are required as an officer to notify your supervisor. Um, any other officer at that scene it has the duty, if it's not a proper use of force, to intercede and report that to a supervisor. So the supervisor is going to be notified. The supervisor has to go out on every use of force incident, no matter how minor it is. It could be simply a uh, somebody starts to resist as we're putting you in handcuffs and we have to do a leg sweep and take you to the ground. That is going to be documented. That's going to be reported to a sergeant. The sergeant has to then write an unusual occurrence report that goes directly to me. So I know I'm aware of it and I can review it. Um, the sergeant will then interview the person that force was used on to see what their response is and, and get a statement from them. If they're saying it's unjustified or whatever, then we're going to open up an investigation into that. Um, or the sergeant can say, hey, in reviewing this and talking to everybody and talking to witnesses at the scene, I think this is a questionable use of force and I'm recommended that it be formally investigated. Um, even if it's not formally investigated, there's still every quarter we established a, a, a use of force review board, which is made up of trainers from our department, a, a person from our administration, typically a lieutenant sits on that board. 
and they look at body cam and review every use of force incident to see if there's something we could have done different, if there's a training issue that we need to address, and then we'll address that with the entire department so everybody is made better by those incidents. Um, for a citizen that's not happy with the situation, they can formally go online. We have a, a complaint form. They can come in person and fill that out and turn that in. And any formal complaint, we will investigate it. We, we cannot not investigate it. That will be investigated, assigned to a person here at our department. Uh, it's, it's typically a sergeant that inv investigates those. They will interview them and then interview everybody in a formal investigation and then I get to review all those and then um, either discipline is, is uh, you know, it could, it could result in termination, some type of discipline, demotion, um, or it could be unfounded, exonerated, and then those results would be provided to the citizen when the uh, investigation is completed. If uh, an investigation arises to the point of some member of my command staff, which is a lieutenant captain or myself is involved, uh, typically, we'll have an independent agency, either another law enforcement agency, or we'll, or we'll hire somebody from an outside uh, independent investigator to come in that we pay to do that. So it's a far uh, fair and impartial investigation. So there's there's a lot to it. Um, we take every investigation serious. I know most people that have issues with law enforcement say, "Well, you guys are you guys are investigating your own," um, mm. but that is true. But I also, I, we are held to a higher standard and if my officers are doing something wrong, it, they will be dealt with. And they know that here, that if, if we all make mistakes and sometimes um, discipline is, we all got to own our mistakes. But um, if you're doing something to the point of getting, getting terminated, people know here that if, if, you, if you lie, if you commit a crime, if you use excessive force, you're not going to be working here anymore. And that's just, that's a known fact. And would you say that's unique for your department or would you say that's pretty ubiquitous in the sense like nationally? I know you can't speak for nationally, but let's just say the state of California, since that's your state. I mean, would you say that's unique for you or? Um, um, honestly, I, I don't know. I know that quarterly reviews of use of force review board. I don't know if that's standard throughout the nation. Um, most attorneys that represent cities, um, I would believe that they would tell their supervisors um, they should go out and gain a statement from the suspect or the person that force was used on. And then if there's a questionable use of force to have that investigated, I really don't know how other departments do it, hmm. but I know nationwide it's not consistent. And for any policy or reform for police departments, I do encourage that um, we should all be doing things the same way, especially when it comes to, a use of force or, or citizen complaints. Um, it should be a standard that's a national standard that we all follow. Um, those things I do encourage, anything that we can be more transparent um, and do things more consistent throughout the nation, I think would only benefit us as a profession. Yeah. One of the questions when we mentioned racial bias in terms of the use of deadly force not really being evident from the from the data. It's a very limited, small pool of data to look at, but um, doesn't seem like you could characterize the police department in Clovis as having, uh, as showing explicit racial bias. But is there, you said you've, that you, they're trained in recognizing their own implicit bias. Is, 
is there some um, diversity among the officers in terms of just does it match the demographic of Clovis, uh, or is it is that something you try to work on? Yeah. So as far as principal principal policing, uh, uh, implicit bias, de-escalation, those are all trainings that are required by POST, which is the Peace Officer Standard Training for California. They set the standard, and that's for everybody within California has to has to provide that training and that's by law so there's certain things that we all have to do um, as far as our demographics we right now represent the community we serve so um, so let's say four percent of the community is african-american I think we're about 2.8 to three percent of our, our of our officers are african-american um, Hispanic is a 30% of our, our community and we're right about there. And, and I think it's 54% of our community is, is white. And, and, um, I think we're probably 60 to the high sixties that are white for our employees. We, we can always do better. Um, we started, uh, two years ago, putting together a, um, a strategic plan on how to better hire and recruit a more diverse workforce. And part of that was to put together a group of citizens of various professions and backgrounds to meet with myself. And uh, we have a citizen uh, manager um, who's also a, a licensed uh, therapist that deals with some of our juvenile population um, offenders. And me and him have kind of put taken this on. We've we've met with this group twice now. We just met actually this week with the group, and it's to engage the community on how do we better uh, recruit people of a diverse uh, background. And it's we we want the best of the best, and it doesn't matter where they're at. But if they're not applying here, then there's probably something we can do better. We looked at our our statistics from our personnel and people that are applying and. 70% of our applicants are white. Um, another, I think it's uh, of that, you know, 60, 70% is Hispanic males that apply. Every other race and gender is at the bottom, like within mm -hmm. under five to 10%. And, and then we, of the people that make it through the process and get hired, I think it was like 60 to 70 were white and then Hispanic dropped significantly. And then all the other races were still very low. So we, we kind of question why does that, why does that drop off? Why are we not hiring Hispanics at a higher rate? How do we get these other uh, races or other ethnicities and genders to apply here? Um, so we've we've been engaging with this group, trying to find out different recruitment strategies, um, trying to make them ambassadors uh, as citizens and leaders in their communities to go back and, and kind of talk about us and what we're doing and the positions we have here to try to encourage people to, to, hmm. to get into law enforcement. And honestly, this all really started from when I became, um, well, it's before then, but I, I got this question a lot. I became chief hmm. the day I got sworn in. My, my best friend and uh, my uh, best man at my wedding is an African-American guy that I grew up with and um, sitting down with his mom, um, eating after my swearing in. And, and the first thing she asked me is, how come you don't have more African-American officers? Hmm. And I told her, hey, it's not a lack from a lack of trying. They are not applying here. And how do we change that? And that's the question we're trying to figure out right now. We're not ignoring it. Um, we're not, you know, people people want to put it on us. But how, how do we engage the community? How do we gain that trust? 
um, especially when things go on like uh, Rashad Brooks and, and uh, George Floyd right now, the officers that I do have and the employees that I do have in our police department that are African-American are getting treated twice as bad as, as in a white officer right now. They're, you know, basically being questioned for crossing the line and working with us. I have a female um, African-American employee that's been told, I can't believe you're working with the people that are killing our kind. And getting stuff like that from citizens on the street makes it a tough position for them to be in. And it makes it that much more challenging in the future to get people to, to, to apply to work in law enforcement. So I think, and honestly, I, I've told people that in different interviews, I think George Floyd incident has set us back probably mm. 10 to 15 years in recruitment and in our diversity in, our, in law enforcement. And it's it just, it makes things a lot more difficult for us. What would you, yeah, I mean, what would you say there's a big, biggest misunderstanding right now? Would you say it's police officers want to kill black lives? I mean, would you say that's like the number one biggest misunderstanding that you come across when you're watching news or watching media or whatever? That's that's the message that seems to be, you know, being put out there when you listen to the media. Um, mm. And if you look at the, the number of officers, I know just in, in California, what do we have? Um, 80,000 police officers, I think in California and, and across the nation, I don't know what the number is for, but just in our, our department, we, we contact, you know, 85,000 calls throughout the year. And you, you, you multiply that across the nation, the number of contacts we have with the public throughout the year and the number of use of force that result in deadly force is, is so minute. Mm. But those yeah. things are, all you're hearing about right now is those few incidents None of, I hope we never have to use force, but I think somebody, yeah. And somebody actually did come up with the math. I said 256 million last year and Los Angeles itself saw the lowest use, um, uh, shooting shootings ever in 2019. And only, I believe nine African-Americans were killed unarmed in that 256 million. So I think a lot of people don't, I mean, that's in the nation. So, um, it's concerning because it's like the psychology of uh, availability bias, you know, um, where just because I see it on the, you know, on the television, therefore it's true. It's becoming really pretty severe at this point. And how do you, I mean, how psychologically that's gotta be just exhausting to be on the, always on the defense. It's kind of like, and I think of that, the biggest misunderstanding is cops want to kill black people. Okay. Well, good luck. You're walking in the minute you're kind of going to the mall, you know, what is that like? I mean, I can't imagine the psychology behind that. I can't imagine the, the the slow mental trauma that some of you must be facing. And it really, my heart breaks for y'all. It really does. Yeah, it's not only us. It's 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 the community as well. Like um, it's so terrible. George Floyd. We had a, f a few officers that uh, one officer came to me and said, "Man, he goes, I just don't know what's going on right now in in, in the world." He goes, I, "I just made a traffic stop, and it was an African American female." And she had a, a death grip on the steering wheel and she's sobbing in tears because she thinks he's going to kill, kill her. Oh, and he's like, he's like, this is, this is crazy. He goes, but I mean, that's, we can't ignore it. It is a problem. If people truly believe that, how do we fix that as an, as a nation, as, as citizens, that's a problem. Even if the numbers don't show it, if people perceive that it's something we need to fix and work on and, that officer took the time, actually got her out of the car and, and just wanted to talk to her. Why do you feel this way? And try to try to say, hey, I'm a human being that just has a uniform on, that has a job to do. 
and I'm not looking to hurt anybody. And um, I think end up giving her a hug and send her on her way. And, and he wow. stopped somebody, I think, shortly thereafter and had a similar incident with a Hispanic uh, male. And he's just like, man, I, I'm just going to stop doing traffic stops today because, you know, it's mentally exhausting on him to to see that the people I encounter look at me this way, that I'm out looking to to hunt people that are looking for an opportunity to shoot somebody, which is just not the case. How would you, I mean, which I, I feel very discouraged, like, you know, as far as where we're going to go as an I mean, but where do you, do you see anything out of any, any way we can get out of this or this I, mindset that's just ingrained and, and I, I'm assuming you've seen it. I'm assuming it's, it's been worse over the years. This was real similar with uh, when uh, Michael Brown under, under Obama's administration, kind of when that stuff went on, we kind of saw the same thing happen, but really it's, it's, it's changed a lot this time. It's more, uh, it's had a longer lifespan. It's become more violent, more aggressive. And it's, and I'm, and I, I want to separate those two because protests is one thing. And mm -hmm. um, I'm all about, you know, protecting people's right to protest and, and, and their first amendment rights to, you know, disagree with things and ask for change. Um, but the violence and rioting that we're seeing, I think, is something from a totally different anti-America, at least from my perspective, that I think that is totally unrelated to George Floyd and, and the policing issue. seems mm -hmm. like that is a totally different um, thing that's going on. And for law enforcement, we cannot allow people to go out and riot and vandalize and um commit crimes, we have to address that and, 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 and bring, you know, peace and uh, calm in our nation. And we cannot ignore that and allow it to happen. And some of the cities that's going on, it's, it's really disturbing, especially as a police chief to sit there and watch that some of these things are being allowed to happen. And mm -hmm. uh, some of the officers are, our departments are being kind of ordered by their, their government officials not to take action um, to me is, is, is really disturbing. So um, I'm glad to be in the community I'm at and currently I know our community um, would disagree with that happening, would be fully supportive of coming out and saying we're not going to allow that to happen in our community. Our city council here in Clovis would be fully supportive of, of us doing our job to go out and, and bring in and restore peace and order in our community. I think also too, it's, I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever read Jason Riley and uh, you know, he makes the argument too in his book, please stop helping us that, um, you know, there are the older black um, women in a lot of these cities back in the seventies when it was just getting really bad, they were actually the ones asking officers to police more. They were actually the ones, the single African-American women's in these, in these inner city crimes in the ghettos in Chicago, where I lived for like 12 years, I remember, you know, so it was actually a lot of the African-American communities, especially the older ones that were like, I don't feel safe. Can you please stop people more often? Because I would like to go, go to the, go to the store. So I think a lot of the community doesn't even understand why even police, more policing, it did not stem from white people wanting power. Hmm. It stemmed actually much more from minority groups asking the police to do even more of it. So it's just, it's, it's really concerning. Yeah. I, or one of the hot button issues as well is the idea of mass incarceration. So just jumping in on the local numbers, it's, uh, according to, again, that scorecard, it was saying, uh, 
uh, arrests are 11.3 times more likely to be for misdemeanors than violent crimes. That's probably true across the board or some level of that, a, a much higher rate of misdemeanors being uh, leading to arrests and violent crimes. Is that a problem? And how do you, how do you address that just from your yeah, perspective? I, I honestly didn't look at that number because I honestly completely agree. It's probably accurate. Um, that stems from laws in our state um, under Proposition 47 and 57 where many crimes were um De reclassified from felonies to misdemeanors. Um, all of our drug crimes are now misdemeanors when they used to be felonies. A lot of other crimes have, uh, certain types of thefts have now gone from felonies to misdemeanors. Um, just because you're arrested for a misdemeanor doesn't mean you go to jail. Most, the majority of the time, probably 95% of the time, um, you're getting a citation with a court date. Um, so to say when people hear arrest, um, it's, that's not really accurate. Um, I didn't know that. That's a good yeah. clarification. Yeah. So, so and, it's not and, necessarily contributing to the mass incarceration directly. Um, no. And in California, I mean, just last week, um, the 18,000 inmates were released back into our community because of, of, of COVID. Um, we have a zero bail currently. So our, our police are, um, really handcuffed right now. If I, if I arrest you for, committing a nonviolent crime and some, some crimes that are considered nonviolent, I would question um, if that's the case, but um, the, some of the crimes that they have classified, if I arrest you, um, I can take you to jail and they're going to release you within five to 10 minutes after they process you out because there is zero bail for certain crimes. I actually won't accept them. We have to issue citations. So um, we've had people go on our Facebook page that we arrested for, going into a Dick sporting good and stealing, you know, $5,000 worth of stuff and walking right by the security guard and, and walking right out and kind of laughing. Um, this happened at multiple stores within Fresno and Clovis. We eventually caught them, arrested them. They were out within five minutes and they were on our Facebook page because we posted, you know, these people were arrested and this was what they were doing. They're actually commenting on the, our Facebook posts on our police department site kind of laughing about it saying, well, that's zero bail and blah, blah, blah. Wow. And so it, it's, it's pretty bad when our, our criminals are that brazen to, to yeah. Yeah. they can even see that the system is broken right now. And, and um, basically nothing's going to happen and they can go out and commit whatever crimes they want and they're not going to be held accountable. So um, yeah, it's, it's very challenging, but I do agree. Misdemeanors are the majority of what we, arrest here in Clovis, the majority of our crime is property related crime. We don't have a lot of violent crime, knock on wood, and hopefully we, we keep it that way. Um, but I don't disagree. I mean, as a citizen, though, I feel less safe when you just said that. I'm like, I feel like, where are my guns? That's my first thought. <laughs> like, I feel really unsafe if that were in my community. That's terrifying. No, I don't I'm, think I'm, I don't think I'm alone feeling that way. It's yeah. like some guy could walk in my house and you know, beat my wife and leave and he'll get a misdemeanor yeah. and there's nothing I can do. That's terrifying. Sheriff Mims came out and said something like, you don't have time to uh, respond to all of the COVID misdemeanors because we're busy rearresting all the people that have been released um, or, or got out on zero bail. Uh, so speaking to that issue and then also related to how, how has the res police responded to COVID 
uh, you know, the COVID guidelines and have people called in with complaints about, oh, hey, there's a party going on next door. I need the police to come and shut that down. Um, I know it's, it's sort of related, but in the sense that we've got bigger fish to fry, it seems like. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, we, when this initially started the pandemic, we were asking for, for compliance, which we got um, most businesses shut down initially and then. Um, everybody complied. We didn't have any issues. We never, we have not issued one citation for any type of violation related to COVID or um, somebody not wearing their mask or complying with, with the health orders. Um, since that time, businesses reopened and now we've shut them down again. And a lot, a lot more citizens are becoming our business owners, a little bit less apt to comply with that. Um, as the police department, we're the lowest staffed in the state of California and we, do not have the resources to go out and do that. Our city council has taken the position of if the um, if we get a call, we refer that over to somebody that at the city hall, and they they will decide to refer that to Fresno County Health Department, and then also the the state health department to enforce. They're the primary um, enforcement uh, uh, of these orders. Okay. And the only time we will really get involved if it's an egregious violation, it was a, you know, 500 person concert where everybody's out there close quarters, not respecting social distancing. And, and kind of like one of our council members said, if, if we would call the county first, if they won't come out, then if it's egregious, we'll violate it. But if the county's not willing to come out or the state, uh, how egregious is it? So hmm. really we're, we're probably not going to get involved. Um, we we are not the mask police uh, we will not come out and um you know businesses have the right to refuse they have to enforce that and say if you come in our business you have to wear a mask all our officers if they go into any public building any any store on a call they put a mask on when they're out in public they're not required to so they won't wear it as long as they can maintain social distancing um if they're in the police department right now everybody if i'm in my own office right here i don't have to wear a mask but as soon as i walk out that door and I'm walking around the hallway, I have to put a mask on. And we've had uh, four employees here test positive for COVID. I've had to put out probably, I don't know, I'd say in, in the time we've been in this pandemic, probably 30% of my department's been out on, on a, a quarantine at some point. And uh, that's, we take it serious just because we can't ha afford to have when we're short staffed, you know, a whole entire shift be put out on a 14 day quarantine, we, we would be hurting. So hmm. we, we really encourage our officers all to wear a mask, you know, trying to maintain social distancing. They don't come in the station anymore and do any, any type of briefing that's all done virtually um, or out in the field and in a, in a parking lot where they can maintain social distancing. So um, hmm. that's kind of where we're at related to COVID right now and our enforcement of it. That's good to hear. Um, one last thing on the on the defunding the police, and then I just want to wrap it up with a with a comment about um, about the you know just the responses that that you've given. But the the nationwide agenda of Black Lives Matter has been to basically adopt this defund the police, um, and I think when you really get down to like what it means, it's usually a reallocation of funding. You know, it's a taking money. It's not necessarily burning it all down, although some have tried that approach. And I mean, they're obviously entering into anarchy in those areas that they do that with. But 
for the most people, most regional people, they say, well, it's just about taking some of the funds from the police and putting it in areas like housing, health, uh, education. In your, you know, we've already talked a little bit about the fact that you're underfunded in, in some ways, um, taking more of those funds and putting them in categories like education and health. What, what's your thoughts on that? Is, does redistribution make sense? as the best way to move forward? Uh, I mean, the only defunding I could see was would be to, you know, mental health um, has been brought up, homelessness has been brought up. And and again, law enforcement's not the best to deal with those, those two things. Those two things have been put in our lap over the years because really nobody else has the resources or ability to, to address them. Um, so it's kind of been, become a law enforcement thing. Um, so I wouldn't say defunding police because at least here locally in Clovis, we are already the lowest staffed department in, in the state. Um, but if you could find funds and properly fund agencies to take on mental health, um, I think back in what the 70s, 80s, when, when mental health the hospitals kind of went by the wayside, this problem's only grown over the years. If we could properly address those issues um, and fund those things, and then for homelessness, if if we had a, a way to properly fund that and deal with it and have the programs and resources in place that law enforcement could call when they're encountering those and have mm -hmm. somebody come out and stand by and help that person, uh, absolutely. That we try to do that now. We work with local nonprofits, the Rescue Mission, and yeah, and yeah. the Pavarillo House and. We'll have them come out when we do some of our homeless sweeps and have them provide the resources and try to get people to, to take advantage of that. But a majority, 90% uh, of the people that we encounter don't want anything to do with those resources. They choose to be homeless and choose to be on the street because that's what they want. So, uh, again, it's if you, if somebody's not seeking help, it's it's hard to solve that problem as well. Hmm. Well, I see the correlations. If I could step in, that's my, you know, most of the people that are homeless, I think there's, there's, uh, I, I know I can't do a national survey, but they did something up here in Boston. They had something like, I can't remember the exact number, but it's pretty high of people that are homeless, have severe mental illness, schizophrenia, not taking their medications. So I do think if you're going to talk about that, would you be open for more state hospitals? Uh, most people will come in the hospital. They are off their meds. They're homeless as well. I mean, it's, how is that helpful for them? You know, it's not helping them to be, you know, so I, I could see that. But then you would have to bring up the argument. Well, will you bring those funds to actually getting people off the streets, putting them in a safe environment where they're still locked down? Hmm. Uh, mental hospital, you can't leave. <laughs> you are there because you're unsafe to yourself or other people or you're highly paranoid. And um, yeah, so it's almost like they're 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 addressing red herrings and the wrong thing. And it's like that is a totally different argument. But what does it have to do with officers anyway? I just well, that's kinda... like for our like the, our police department, um, our hospital here in town is uh, within our top five number of calls for service. That location is is number three. Um, mm. so that's the most calls, and a majority of those are people that have left the hospital because they're not properly equipped to deal with the mentally ill and, and they don't 
maybe they don't have security or the proper facility to house them where they get out and they have to call us because they're walking down the street or a citizen calls because they're walking down the middle of a major major street or causing an issue at a local business close to the hospital so yeah it's definitely a, a revolving door that there's not a solution with the hospital systems there's not a solution in law enforcement it is definitely a broken system that that um, we we encounter a lot of calls that, that deal with the mentally ill and i think there's that if anything when you talk about reform that's an area that really needs to be reformed to allow us when we do deal with it to have better re resources to be able to get people the proper help they need i mean that's where i kind of let you know not to take up too much time on that that's where i kind of like okay these people really don't know what they're talking about here because in massachusetts we actually have a thing we have a thing called mass health that was done by mitt romney and you know it was all centered on therapy first so we have emergency crisis we have in-home therapists we have people that will come out and do tons of therapy for a lot of these people you know exactly what all of the defunding police do but again it still doesn't bring up the option of when you are feeling really unsafe what do you do there and anyway just yeah it's because we already have all that but if you talk to most officers here it's still not enough funding for the job that they do and they still get kind of intermingled in some of these jobs that they never meant to have so mm. anyway mm. Yeah. well i am i am wanted to wrap it up with just the the thought about this this scorecard you know that gave you um and you mentioned this earlier that, that gave put ranked clovis in uh position 90 out of 100 and fresno was ranked 42 and i just was thinking i've lived in fresno i've lived in clovis I think you're more like you're three times more likely to be a victim of a violent crime in Fresno than you are in Clovis. And I'm not saying there's a direct parallel correlation here. Uh, I, I know there's aspects of demographics and, you know, um, average household income, things like that, that, that do factor into the, the crime rate. But it seems like the better score you have, you may actually result in a higher rate of violent crime in your community. And I don't, I don't understand that there, there's got to be some recognition that some of these policy changes that they're asking for or encouraging could actually be making the community less safe. In, in, yeah. in you know, I mean, if you if you start eliminating limit uh, the, the use of force, like, and and you make it to where officers have no option, um, you know, other than. I don't, I don't even know what they would want you to do. They don't want any lethal use of force and they don't want you to ever be physical with people. So what's the, the recourses to officers just have to talk them down from beating up someone. And, you know, I mean, it's going to make us less safe. Yeah. Yeah. And, and going back to the scorecard, looking through it, um, some of the things on here, um, like uh, homicides unsolved, it says that we had five homicides um, from 2013 to 2018. Um, every one of our homicides that we we had here in Clovis are all solved. We know who committed them. Um, like wow. uh, one of them was a was a double double homicide, where it was a suicide homicide. So obviously we can't arrest somebody in that situation. So it's going to show unsolved. We know who committed the crime. Um, so going back in the last 50 years i think there's only one homicide that we've had here that is unsolved truly unsolved wow and so just just that numbers like that are, are completely yeah inaccurate and um yeah i don't know how you get a, a good score I, i'm i'm confused by 
honestly how it works out as far as some of the policies they have in place here and um, hmm. like the uh, police violence by race, it shows uh, 9% arrested is, is African-American, which is, is inaccurate again. Police killed or seriously injured, it shows 50% is Hispanic and 50% is white. Only person we killed was in, in 2016 and it was a white male. So I'm not sure where that information comes from. Wow. Um, yeah, I don't know how you would get an, an A grade on the scale, but um, I, I guess we're the safest city in the Valley and um, our citizens, we got a high satisfaction rating and, and we respond to all our highest priority calls in less than five minutes. And that's our, our three goals. And if that's, uh, if that's an F rating, then uh, I, I think we're doing okay. So <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm exactly. not really sure. Well, I would just want to echo. I'm a, I'm thankful for the department, thankful for your leadership during this time. And I know you've made yourself available um, to interviews and to just represent the department and you've done an amazing job. Um, I, I think the unintended consequences will be much worse than any intended consequences to, to a lot of these reforms. Um, and so I, I hope that the Clovis community recognizes um, the great job that you guys are doing with really less staff than most departments have, and that we, if anything, come out of this uh, more supportive of our police officers. And I really hope we can be an example to uh, the nation on this matter. Any any closing words on your end, just that you would like to share uh, with with the public or or Peter, if you have any comments? Yeah. No, I just I, thank you, thank you, Chief Fleming, for being on here. I just we mm -hmm. uh, really admire your work, and I, uh, Brad and I both really wanted to have a um, an officer, even better, you know, police chief. <laughs> you know, that's yeah, great. This is fantastic because. I, I'm I'm concerned, you know. I think we both are, you know, just how our officers are really being slandered. Um, uh, not just, and you know, we're we're part of the church. I, th I would even say that the slander is pretty prevalent in the church too. Um, you know, the there, it's just it's pretty it's saddening, you know, that that even your own pastors, you see pastors and there's leaders in churches that are buying the same rhetoric, hmm. causing laments on all the black people that are killed by officers, and you know, there's a famous. Um, I don't mind saying this. The, the yeah, Gospel Coalition did a lament not too long ago, and there, one of the prayers was, you know, all the officers, all the uh, we pray for the black lives and all the officers that are killing these black lives. And I'm like, you're giving right in to the narrative, and you're supposed to be the church. You're supposed to be telling people the truth. And the ninth commandment is, don't lie. Um, you know, I'm fine if it's true, and it's like if they're if they're, if show me the data and if it's actually accurate data, then we could talk about stuff, but don't like propagate lies to prove your own point. That's, that's, uh, it's evil. You know, it's, it's, it's wrong. Um, so I just, I pray for y'all. I uh, thank you so much just for being here. And, um, I hope you can last four more years. You look young. I wonder, <laughs> I'm just curious. Like, yeah, when you said you're about to retire, I think I might be older than you. I mean, I don't no, know. I got, I got five and a half years where I, before I can actually, Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm like, I, all right. Yeah. Uh, maybe I should. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I just, I really appreciate your service and appreciate the, you know, putting your life on the line um, for your citizens. I just, it's really thank you for that. Yeah. I, it's an honor to meet I, you. All I'd ask that you guys um, 
pray for us, pray for our department, pray for our citizens and our families that, uh, you know, we can get through this and, and figure out a way um, to navigate these times and, and come out better on the other side. Um, I would encourage people that um, think law enforcement is not doing the right things or needs to change to get involved in law enforcement, come in and, and join us, uh, be, be a part of the solution, um, become, <laughs> become an officer and, and change, change things, help us diversify our workforce. Hmm. Um, we, we don't discourage those things. We encourage them and we're trying to find ways to do that. Um, so that I thank you guys for giving me the opportunity just to have a, a platform to be able to answer some of these, these questions yeah. and talk about these topics. Um, and, um, Again, uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. appreciate it. Well, it was a pleasure. Um, okay, well, thank you again to Chief Fleming for his time. That was um, very helpful for me. I felt like I learned a lot of things, um, even on a local level, um, and it confirmed a lot of things as well. Because I've I've really heard nothing but positive things about our police officers from friends and and family, and I would not have expected it to be uh, radically different. Um, but I thought he was helpful as well, just on a you know, national level, thinking yeah. through some things, recognizing that not every community is so enthusiastic about their police department. Um, I, yeah, I, I learned a lot from him and I really appreciated, yeah, just being able to talk to him. Sounds like he really wants to keep his people very accountable, which I, mm. you know, which I appreciate. Yeah, that's yeah. great. It was very good. Well, why don't you wrap up our, yeah. uh, well, you know, tell people about the, where they can find us. Yeah, if you all can find us at uh, Apple Apple Podcasts, just subscribe. Make sure you hit that little button. Leave a review. Feel free to leave a review, and um, love to have you all. Uh, you know, listen to us and uh, come on over <laughs> to the other yeah, side. We've got, we've got some interviews coming up in a little bit, which yes, I think do. is exciting. Yeah. Um, and so we we look forward to continuing this conversation around the various hot button issues that we're dealing with. Um, if you also want to follow us almost daily, there's something added to our Facebook page, whether it's just an article or a quote or something. So we want to be able to uh, pass that information along to you as well and generate some conversation on Facebook that then might be used in our podcast. So. Join us on Facebook at Sound Engagement. Uh, we also are going to have a, a website available soon where we can share some of our own articles. I know Peter writes, and I've got um, and some intentions to write as well. So we'll be using uh, the website for, for articles. We'll be sharing, continuing the conversation on podcasts, but then we have social media as well for you to engage. Anyways, thanks for joining us. Thanks, everyone. Appreciate you All listening. Right. Bye.